0: We are going to be looking at the life story of Joseph, found in the, at the end of the book of Genesis. I've titled the series, The Gospel According to Joseph. And so, one of the things that's a little different is we're looking at longer portions of narrative scripture. And we're doing this for a couple different reasons. One is that, obviously, it's important to preach and teach and learn the whole counsel of God, all of the scriptures. But I wonder sometimes if we forget that, take the ancient church, the early church, when they didn't have, it's not like I could say, turn to your Bibles, open it, you know, no printing press yet, that kind of stuff, no iPads or iPhones, turn to your Kindle on page, you know, or location, whatever. When somebody would come in and read as part of their worship service, they would often, it's like, oh, we've got this letter. Here we are, church at Ephesus. We've got a letter being delivered to us from our apostle, Paul. And they wouldn't just pick a couple of different verses to read. They would read the entire letter. So you would get the entire flavor of it, so that you would not pick and choose things you like and don't like. And to worship in the early church required some discipline, because you were required to listen to the entire Word of God. So we are going to be looking, because I think it's good for us. Don't you love when your pastor says, we need a little discipline in our lives? That's like, oh, you're like, oh, this is off to a good start. Where is he going to go from here when he's starting off at that point? But we're going to listen to some lengthier or longer, and they'll vary in size, portions of scripture, which will require some discipline on our part to stay attentive to hear. But as a result, guess what? I'm going to let you sit down for it. So I'm not just a bad guy, okay? You're going to be able to sit in here. The... So I'm going to ask something. You've got to give something, but I'm going to give in return as well. So let's pray. And then our first narrative, the beginning of the Joseph story, begins in Genesis chapter 37. And that's what we're going to look at. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts to his word. We come before you, Father, completely dependent, asking, Father, that... You would give us the spirit to be our helper, to supply what's lacking in us, to supply what we need. What's lacking in us is hearts of obedience, eagerness, readiness to hear your word. What's lacking in us is a autonomy and a commitment to our own autonomy and doing life on our own. And it affects even our minds. It affects how we think. It affects how we receive your word. And so, Father, we're dependent on you to give us your spirit to help us understand and apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So now, friends, listen to the reading of God's word, which I'm going to read Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 to 13, and then we're going to drop down a little bit. See, I could have made it worse. We could have read the whole chapter. And then we'll pick up again at verse 23 and read to the end of the chapter, which is at verse 36. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gather around and bow down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And then going down to verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in his blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this is what we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Does God always make sense? Think about, where do we start? Joseph has a dream, has this, kind of incurs his brother's hatred. Not exactly James Dobson's focus on the family here, do you think? Are they going to be doing James Dobson's podcast anytime soon? With favoritism, rivalry, envy, jealousy, hatred, not a lot of remorse. You think Joseph in the pit is looking up and going, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. How about Jacob? This is the son he loves, the son of his beloved wife, Rachel, whom he loved more, you know, talk about again, Father of the Year, more than any of his other wives. And look at what happens to him, and he's mourning, and he's weeping, and he's crying. He goes, I'm going to go down to Sheol with my son, the place of the dead. Does God always make sense? Larry Crabb, in his new book, When God's Ways Make No Sense, says life isn't going according to plan. Our story is off script. There's a stack of unexpected bills, new health concerns, a for-sale house that won't sell, troubling marital tensions, an uncontrollable sexual urge that brings hidden shame, a level of listlessness bordering on depression. It's always something. Nothing is ever exactly as we want it to be, at least not for long. Tim Keller, in his ministry in New York City, has often said that one of the most common objections he gets to when he's trying to share the faith with non-Christians, one of the most common objections to Christianity goes something like this. He says people are constantly saying, if God really is in charge of all things, like you said, every detail, completely sovereign, he must be incompetent. Look at my life. Look at all the things that are happening. Look at the disappointments. Look at everything that has happened to me. Look at the world. If God is in charge of me, he must be incompetent. Over the next month or so until just after Thanksgiving, we're going to be looking at the life story of Joseph. And through Joseph's story, through this narrative, we will be seeing that even though it is often hidden from our eyes, we see God's sovereign redemptive purposes being worked out in history it may not make sense to us it may be hidden from our eyes but God is unfolding a narrative in redemptive history of his sovereign purposes I honestly believe that behind Joseph's story lie the words of the prophet Isaiah for my thoughts are not your thoughts Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But again, as Dr. Crabb says, here's Isaiah's point. Our thoughts and ways about how life should unfold for Jesus' followers are so much lower in wisdom than God's thoughts and ways that we sometimes cannot understand how God is going about telling his love story. So much goes wrong in so many of our lives and it all happens on God's watch. We think we know exactly how our life should be going. We think we know exactly how it should turn out. Here's the problem. We give ourselves way too much credit. We don't have all the information. And if we had all the information, we're not smart enough to know what to do with it. We give ourselves way too much credit, but maybe, just maybe, if we listen to the story, and I mean really listen to the story, we can get a new or perhaps different perspectives on our lives because we can get a different perspective, a different view of God. Because through this narrative, through the story, we can learn of God's sovereign, redemptive purposes, that he really is working all things out for our good and his glory, not dependent upon our understanding. And in this opening act of Joseph's story, we're going to learn three things. Three things as God's sovereign redemptive purposes begin to unfold. We're going to learn in this opening act of Joseph's privileged position. We're going to learn of Joseph's promised purpose. And we're going to learn of Joseph's perilous path. And yes, I know I got a little corny there with all the peas, But I had fun with it preparing this. See, another P. Preparing this week. Say that ten times fast as a way of remembering the outline. Privileged position, promised, purposed, and perilous path. See if you can do that, you got it, you got it down. All right, Joseph's privileged position. A little backstory as we begin Joseph's story. And it's interesting. If you read Genesis beginning to end, which by the way would be a good idea. Again, don't pick and choose, but the book was meant to be a literary whole, beginning to end, all 50 chapters. You will see it's basically the literary structure that Moses unfolds for us here is done in 10 Acts, each around the words, these are the generations of. These are the generations of the heavens and earth. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah, Abraham. And so now it begins, these are the generations of Jacob. And the back story is we learn a little bit about Jacob beginning back in chapters 29 and 30. We learn that Jacob had 12 sons by four different wives, not exactly God's complete design here. Two of them, the primary ones, Rachel and Leah, were involved in what you might want to call a very jealous rivalry. This could be a miniseries on USA Network or TNT or something like that. Okay, And Jacob, in one of the many ironies in this story was deceived, and I say one of the many ironies because Jacob's name means deceiver or heel grabber. He was born a twin, his brother Esau came out first, and he was grabbing the heel, thus his name Jacob or heel grabber, and his life story kind of mirrored his name a little bit, and here he was deceived into marrying Leah, not the woman he loved. His response Very human response, not a godly response, but a very human response, was to favor Rachel, and of course, Rachel's children, one of whom is Joseph. So, as our story begins, and as Joseph's introduced, he's 17 years old. So, yes, in Jewish culture, he's a grown man, but he's a young grown man. So, guess what? He's immature, he's faithful, and as we'll see, he's a man of integrity, he's a faithful man, but he's an immature man. He's an impetuous man. He's a man, doesn't it sound a little bit like progressive sanctification? We grow, we slip back, we move forward, we move back, we take one step forward, we turn around and run a 50-yard dash backwards, but it's still called faithfulness if we're pursuing the Lord, am I right? And so here's Joseph, and we're told of his privileged position and of his brother's hostility toward him. We're told, first of all, that Jacob, his father, verse 3, gives him a robe of many colors. Now, translators struggle with exactly what this is. Many call it a coat with long sleeves. Here's what's unequivocally clear. We know that it was quite ornate, it stood out, it was distinctive, and it set Joseph apart from the rest. It's kind of like, I remember growing up watching Sesame Street, remember these things, one of these things is not like the other? That's Joseph. One of these things is not like the other. And Jacob's reinforcing that, which doesn't do well for family harmony. Trumper Longman, in his commentary, says of this, he says, the gift of the robe served to set Joseph apart from his brothers, thus feeding their hostility and envy. It was not so much the robe itself, but that it stood for the special love and favor that their father bestowed upon Joseph, their younger brother. So what is clear is Jacob had a special love for Joseph, very much like the special love God has for us, his children. But what is also clear is that Joseph, at least at this point, 17 years of age, grown up but still a long way to go, doesn't quite understand the purpose of his privileged position. And here it's very important, and I'll make this in the way of application, kind of lessons from the story as we go through this. If we understand... This, there's nothing wrong with having a privileged position. We definitely have a privileged position with God. We're the objects of His love, the objects of His favor, the objects of unmerited, undeserved, unearned grace. That's a privileged position. But it's never meant to fuel a narcissistic life, it's never meant to be spent on ourselves. See, Joseph was chosen, but he was still immature. And so again, as Trumper Longman says, he says, as we will see as we work our way through the overall Joseph story in the book of Genesis, the chosen are not given preferential treatment by God. Indeed, their status as chosen, if anything, means they will suffer more. There are no ornate coats for God's chosen, but rather famine, conflict, barrenness, and struggles of all sorts. Do we understand that our privileged position with God is for the purpose of living for his glory and for service? Let me illustrate it biblically this way. Just take the structure of the entire book of Ephesians for a second. The book of Ephesians is divided into two halves, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. In a nutshell, chapters 1 through 3 are our privileged position in Christ. It begins with things like, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself according to His purpose, according to His will. He's accepted us in the Beloved In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He's lavished grace. Didn't drizzle grace upon us. He's lavished grace upon upon us. He's given us the revelation of the mystery of his plan. He's given us the down payment, the deposit of the Holy Spirit. When we were dead, he made us alive. He's reconciled us together. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, now take that privileged position. He says, I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, To live a life worthy of the calling. The calling back in chapters one through three. All of these things of being chosen and adopted and loved and lavished upon and revealed to and given the Holy Spirit, every spiritual blessing. And live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Reminds me of the movie Spider Man. You like this illustration? I'm going all, I've given you Sesame Street and Spider Man today. Notice I've Yankees lost, I'm repenting of sports illustrations. You're getting Sesame Street and Spider-Man. But Spidey's told with great power comes great responsibility. What more power have you received than being united to Jesus Christ, having the Holy Spirit, Joseph's privileged position, with a robe of many colors, only prefigures? Did you listen to the parable Al read a few moments ago of the prodigal returning from exile, Joseph's story is one of exile to return. The prodigal goes into exile to return only to have the father lavish, put a robe on him, get a ring and put it on his, on his finger, shoes on his feet, get the best fattened calf and kill it. What are we going to do? We're going to throw the biggest, most outlandish party and celebrate in the world. That's the privileged position you have in Christ. And yet it's not to be for our own narcissistic self-interest. It is for the purpose of service. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to his disciples. Because Christians like Joseph are given great privilege, great status, and thus great responsibility. When Jesus was calling his disciples and training and teaching them, he explained this to him. He says, when he called them and said to him, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, Look at the politics, look at the world, look at Caesar, look at Rome. He says, They have a lot of power, a lot of authority, and what do they do? They abuse their power, they exploit their power. They use it for wrong purposes. And what does he say? It shall not be so among you. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be given status. You're going to be given position. But you are not to use your power the way the world uses their power. He says, let me define greatness for you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Joseph was given a privileged position. We Christians are given a privileged position. But that position empowers us for service. Jesus says you will not use your status like the world uses theirs. Very interesting. If you look at the book of Genesis as a literary whole. Genesis 1 ends with God making man in his image to manage and rule and have dominion over the earth, basically ruling the whole earth as God's representative in God's name. And if you look at kind of bracketing and enveloping this, how the Joseph story ends in chapter 50, where is Joseph? He is in Egypt, basically as number two in command, the prime minister in Egypt, governing, ruling the known earth at that time in God's name as God's representative. The power, the prestige, the position, the authority we're given is used for service. Next, look at Joseph's promised purpose. And in many ways, this is the same as his privileged position, but now his dreams kind of reinforce this. And one of the reasons I did this as a separate point is I want to show you here how the hatred of Joseph by his brothers kind of ratchet up a notch. So as Joseph, a faithful man, is in a sense being elevated by the sovereign purposes of God. Notice what comes. Conflict comes. Tension occurs. Verse 5 says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Commentators here remind us that here Joseph interprets his own dream. Later in the story, he's going to interpret the dreams of two high-level Egyptian officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and eventually even the dreams of Pharaoh himself. And on all these occasions, the dreams come in pairs. They come in duplicate with the second dream confirming and reinforcing the message of the first in some way. Here, Joseph's first two dreams point to and promise Joseph a future with a high status and a high purpose. He will rise to some kind of predominance. And verse 8, his brothers said to him, and they do interpret this rightly, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words commentators again note that the detail of the sheaves may even point to a future when Joseph will be in a position to provide food for his family, which of course is exactly what happens at the end of the story. As one writer put it, the future will prove the dreams correct. Joseph will achieve high status among his brothers and even in relationship with his father. However, what the brothers do not understand is that his high status will serve their interests. But if of course, perhaps even more significantly, we certainly get no sense that Joseph understands that his future power is for service. Which leads to our final point. I told you I'd be brief with that second point. If this is Joseph's future, if this is his promised purpose, what path does he have to take to get there? And his path is a perilous one. We learn in verses 12 and 13 that Joseph's brothers head off to a city. The city was called Shechem. Shechem, uh, they were going to pasture. They were shepherds. They're pasturing their father's flocks. Shechem's, uh, their family's home was Hebron. So Shechem was about 80 miles away from Hebron, which is quite a lengthy journey. The point of that is to show Joseph, when he goes there, is about to be a long, long way away from his father's protection. Jacob now referred to in the text as Israel, calls Jacob and sends him out to find his brothers. This is significant because what the narrator is wanting to show us is how the people of God end up in Egypt. Because what comes after Genesis is Exodus. What is Exodus? The deliverance and the liberation. Know the biblical story from Egypt. So the narrator is showing us how did the people of God, by the sovereign, providential purposes of God, end up in Egypt. And he's showing us exactly how. Joseph dutifully obeys, and he's then told, and notice every detail, because you might go, Where is God in all this? He's behind every one of these, even though he's not explicitly mentioned. He's told by some unnamed informant, who knows who that is, that his brothers have moved on to the town of Dothan. Again, a couple of significant details. That's another 13 miles away, putting Joseph even further away from his father's protection. And another significant detail lands him on the international trade route that runs from the north down to where? I bet you can say it with me. Egypt. Because what is God unfolding? He is saying salvation is going to come to Egypt. Joseph doesn't know this yet, but God is unfolding his purposes. And from there we are told in the narrative that seeing him from afar, the brothers conspire to kill him. But first Reuben, who's the firstborn, intervenes, advising them not to kill Joseph. So they take him, they strip him of his robe, they throw him into a pit. A cistern that we're told holds no water. And that's probably a significant detail because we're to infer from that he would not drown. And then in verses 25 and 26, we're given another important detail. That is that Judas steps up and it's significant because as the story unfolds, The narrator is interested in highlighting for us the importance of the tribe of Judah as the most important tribe, because it is out of the tribe of Judah that the later Messiah, Jesus, will come. And so Judah suggests, probably not out of any sense of moral outrage, real conviction of, you know, great sin, but probably just because he's a pragmatist here, that rather than killing Joseph, they sell him to the Ishmaelite caravan that just happens to be coming. If you look with me at verse 25, it just so happens that as they sit down to eat, they look up, and lo and behold, what do they see? An Ishmaelite caravan approaching. We may not know all the purposes of God, but they are behind every detail of our lives. God is behind the ordinary details of our lives. The narrative closes with our being told that Joseph has been sold to another, a man by the name of Potiphar, a powerful military official in Egypt. And so the story closes just as God intends it with Joseph in Egypt. Where from our vantage point, not necessarily Joseph's, we can see the hidden redemptive purposes of God. Friends, what lessons do we learn in this? What lessons and applications can we glean from this for our lives? First, I want you to think about something. Where was God in all of this? Where was God in all this? Is he even explicitly mentioned? Do you have kind of a proposition that says in front of you right here, God is in control of all this. Oh, smack dab in my face. No. But where is God in all of this? See, at this moment, how do you think Joseph is feeling from the bottom of the cistern? From the bottom of the pit, what do you think is going through his heart and mind? Maybe wondering a little bit whether God had abandoned him. Where is God in all this mess of my life? Yet, what do we see? We see Joseph, not raging, not calling out, but he's pretty silent because we don't hear from him. Having faith, even in the most troubling of times. Even as his journey takes him down this perilous path to the bottom of a pit to be left to die, he's still at some level, the narrator wants us to know that he still has faith. Friends, how can we have faith? How can we have trust in the most difficult of times? I came across a very interesting definition of maturity that I had never heard before, and it kind of stuck with me. The definition was maturity was having a long sense of time, not living solely for the present moment. Maturity is not simply living for I need food now, I need this now, I need answers now, I need to know what makes sense now, but it's living in the present with a sense of hope for the future, living in light of eternity so you have a long sense of time. Now that's not something that comes naturally or automatically to us, is it? We don't kind of just get that, we're not born mature. I'm not sure if any of us at any age are actually really mature. Hopefully we're growing in maturity. This having a long sense of time is not something that comes automatically to us. We have to learn it through training, through skill, through discipline, through habit, through practice, and oftentimes through difficulties. But if we look at the back end of the story of Joseph, we learn that he did Learn this sense of a long sense of time and perspective when we hear him in chapter 50 saying to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. There's no denial. There's no suppression. Guess what? Your motives, your actions, your hatred, it's evil. You're not good guys. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Romans eight twenty eight. For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to whose purpose? N- not whose purpose? All things work together for good and for His glory, for those called according to His purpose for us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to shape us and mold us and melt us to the image and likeness of Christ from the inside out, is an excellent commentary on the Joseph story. So as Tremper Longman puts it, he says, for now we can already see that God was not at all absent when Joseph was thrown into the cistern and sold to the Ishmaelite traders. He was using the sinful motives and actions of the brothers to begin a process that would lead to the rescue of the family of God from the effects of a devastating famine. In other words, God's purposes are always redemptive. It doesn't matter whether we see them as redemptive or not. God's purposes are redemptive. Is life a mess? Does God seem absent? Remember that God can use the difficulties and pain of life to accomplish his purposes through you and for you. Friends, how do we know this? What is our assurance of this? We have the advantage of looking back to something Joseph could only look forward to and not know how it would unfold. See, from our perspective, we can see how Joseph and different aspects of his life points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. So, for example, we see Joseph suffering silently at the hands of sinful men who wanted to harm him. The book of Acts says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Like Joseph put in a cistern at the hands of sinful, evil men, Jesus, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was crucified according to the sinful actions of lawless men. And Joseph, like Jesus, suffered silently. Isaiah says of the suffering servant, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Joseph points us to the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ. So that for us, we need to recognize life is always Every choice, everything that we are living is always a matter of faith versus taking matters into our own hands. Of faith versus doing what is right in our own eyes. Of faith versus doing and living by what makes sense to us, what seems so so practical to us. Being our own judge, determining our own happiness rather than trusting in the goodness and character of God that is ultimately revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Joseph, even with all his flaws and immaturity, was faithful. We will see that as we go along in the narrative. Do we trust, even when it doesn't make any sense to us, the sovereign, redemptive purposes of God? Father, teach us to trust you in Jesus, through Jesus, and because of Jesus, that we would see Jesus led like a lamb to the slaughter, silent before his shearers, silent before his accusers, suffering silently on our behalf for us. So that even if our present doesn't make any sense to us, we know that we have a hope and a future, that we know that as Joseph, in a way, went through a sort of death in the pit, in the cistern, to a sort of resurrection, being pulled out of it and being brought to Egypt, being prepared for salvation, Jesus has gone through death and resurrection so that our future is death and resurrection. Our eternity is glorious. Our hope is secure. We can be assured of this in and through and because of Jesus. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our hope that we may be overflowing with love and patience and compassion even when life doesn't make sense. In Jesus' name, amen.